This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Uh, yours truly uh, said on last week's show that I was going to travel down to Pasadena for the Planet Fest event on Sunday the 25th, and I'm happy to report that I did so and uh, had a pretty good time. You are no doubt aware of the headline news that uh, NASA was successful in putting the polar lander down on uh, onto the surface of the red planet. So we need to talk about that uh, with uh, the Planetary Society's Matt Kaplan. Uh, Matt will be rejoining us in our second segment today to kind of go over some of the most amazing things that took place on Sunday and are going to take place as that uh, lander sets to work digging into the uh, polar surface to extract some ice, which they're certain is down there just below the, um, the crust. Pretty exciting stuff. We're looking forward to kicking that one around in segment two. So by all means, stay with us. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is May 29th. It was on May 29th in 1844 when voting for a Democratic presidential candidate deadlocked at their national convention, one of the first national conventions held. That was in Baltimore, Maryland. The Democrats decided to go with somebody nobody had ever heard of. James K. Polk was entered as the first what was called Dark Horse candidate. Polk went on to win the nomination on the ninth ballot and in the general election became the 11th president. If uh, Hillary Clinton does not withdraw from the race and some chicanery takes place, there still remains a possibility that the Democrats will not nominate Barack Obama on the first ballot. We, of course, will continue to follow this with you. But it was on May 29th in 1848 that Wisconsin became the 30th state in the Union. The Badger State, and I did not know this, got its name from Wisconsin lead mines, which were called Badgers. On this date in 1942, White Christmas, a recording by Bing Crosby, was released by Decca Records. It became the biggest selling single of all time, and is still played frequently, of course, every Christmas season. It was one year later, on May 29th in 1943, that American artist Norman Rockwell's portrait of Rosie the Riveter appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. It was a tribute to women on the home front working in defense plants in World War II and has become an American art icon. And it was on this date, May 29th, 55 years ago, that the late Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, a Sherpa from Nepal, became the first explorers to reach the summit of Mount Everest. News of the achievement uh, broke around the world a little bit later on June 2nd, which happened to be the day that Queen Elizabeth II was coronated. Wait, I, I'm not sure if that's a verb. It was the date of her coronation. And uh, Britons hailed it as a good omen for their country's future. Our quote of the day comes from Albert Einstein who, in a recently discovered letter written in 1954 to the philosopher Eric Goodnick, said, The word God, for me, is nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are, nevertheless, childish. The letter, written in German, had been in a private collection for more than 50 years. By the way, Einstein also said he had a deep affinity for his Jewish heritage but did not believe that Jews are the, quote, chosen people, unquote. 
My quip of the day comes from the late Kurt Vonnegut, who said, Another flaw in the human character is that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to do maintenance. We have two stats of the day. First is that due to rising gas prices, sales of recreational vehicles are expected to plummet to 305000 this year, which is down 30% from two years ago. That was from Slate.com. And according to Money Magazine, with energy costs soaring and families shrinking, American homes are now getting smaller. One Oklahoma developer is building high-end homes averaging just 1,800 square feet after spending years building houses of up to 6,000 square feet. Our uh, joke of the day comes from uh, the immortal Robert Benchley, who once said, Drinking makes such fools of people. And people are such fools to begin with, it's compounding a felony. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for getting the shot after a Utah newspaper photographer shooting a high school track championship was speared through the leg by a javelin. Ryan McGinney immediately snapped a photo of his impaled leg. And it was a bad week uh, last week for education after schools around the United States began instituting a minimum grade of 50 rather than zero. Educators said that the adjustment would, quote, encourage student performance, unquote. Although we'd be willing to guess that perhaps not in the realm of mathematics. I don't know, there's got to be something wrong with the fact that if you have a pulse, you get a 50. This reminds me of one of my preceptor's comments back in the days of training in medical residency when discussing the Glasgow Coma Scale, where you use three criteria on a score of one to five to judge, uh, you know, how unconscious someone is. He noted that, you know, any, any system of scoring wherein somebody who's dead can still get a three probably has some problems. And finally, it was an, an ugly week, I think, uh, last week for infectious disease control when it was revealed that Alana McCauley of Queens, New York, who began kindergarten in 1995, uh, was noted that when she reached the sixth grade, her mother figured out that she had yet to miss a day of school. As the years went by, Alana made a point of keeping up her unbroken streak, going to class despite blizzards, sore throats, stomach aches, and even a death in the family. She now graduated from St. Mary's High School in Manhasset, New York, still with a perfect attendance record. Yes, one has to wonder how many sore throats she spread around to her classmates in this boneheaded effort to keep up a meaningless record. And of course, I feel especially strong about this because I didn't miss a day of school from the 8th grade to the end of high school and went to school sick and looked back at it as one of the dumbest things I ever did. An opinion that I'm sure would be echoed by all the classmates of mine whom I infected with whatever I took to school with me. All right, and how about a, how about a couple of items here from the Only in America file, which we also glean from The Week magazine. Uh, the city of Brighton, Michigan, is threatening legal action against a local doctor over his unpaid tax bill of 51 cents. Dr. Phil Kazajani says he probably left the cents off a tax check he sent to the city, but notes that it's rather absurd that he's now bombarded with registered mail warnings saying, final notice, 
each one of which cost the city $5.21, by the way. Now, this is what the part I like. City Finance Director Dave Gadgeta said the city has no choice but to pursue any unpaid tax. No matter how small, he said, we can't ignore it or waive it. Mr. Marillon, I think we need to make Dave Gadgeta our Radio Parallax Jackass of the Week. And uh, Only in America File Part 2. Apparently an Arkansas man awaiting trial on murder charges has filed a federal lawsuit claiming that the small portion size of prison meals has caused him to lose weight. Yes, evidently Broderick Laswell claims that in the eight months he's been incarcerated, his weight has dropped from 413 pounds to a mere 308 pounds. Adding that about an hour after each meal, my stomach starts to growl and hurt. Prison officials say Laswell, like all inmates, gets 3,000 calories a day, more than sufficient for a healthy adult male. Well, we would have to point out that since this man's opportunities for exercise are probably limited in jail, and he has lost 100 pounds in 10 months, eh, something must be wrong with his calorie count. Having said that, when you start out weighing 413 pounds, he probably should be paying the prison for the weight loss program they've enrolled him in. I mean, it, it could save his life, assuming, of course, he's not convicted of murder and given the death penalty. All right, uh, probably the biggest story of this week politically is uh, Scott McClellan resorting to telling the truth. Better late than never. We would refer you to an excellent article uh, on truthout.org by Michael D. Shearer from the Washington Post wherein Mr. Shearer notes that uh, McClellan writes in the new memoir that the Iraq war was sold to the American people with a sophisticated, quote, political propaganda campaign, unquote, led by President Bush and aimed at, quote, manipulating sources of public opinion, unquote, and, quote, downplaying the major reason for going to war, unquote. I'm curious to know what uh, Scott McClellan thinks the real major reason for going to war, what that was. This is a 341-page book titled What Happened Inside the Bush White House and Washington's Culture of Deception. This really is an amazing thing. And McClellan is basically calling the press to task uh, for their lack of inquisitiveness and in going after what was really going on. This, this, this from a guy whose main job was to, to herd the press down a certain chute that the administration wanted them to go down. Article notes this criticism of Bush is striking, given that it comes from a man who followed him to Washington from Texas. Bush is depicted in the book as an out-of-touch leader operating in a political bubble who stubbornly refused to admit mistakes. Interestingly, McClellan defends the president's intellect. Bush is plenty smart enough to be president, he writes, but casts himself as unwilling or unable to be reflective about his job. Adding, a more self-confident executive would be willing to acknowledge failure to trust people's ability to forgive those who seek redemption for mistakes and show a readiness to change. Apparently, McClellan's pretty upset about the fact that uh, he, well, he admits to letting himself be deceived about the unmasking of CIA operative Valerie Plame Wilson. At one point, he basically personally vouched for what uh, Scooter Libby and, uh, and Karl Rove uh, were saying about it, and he realized later that, uh, you know, he'd been had. He also suggests in the book that Rove and Libby may have worked behind uh, and Libby may have worked behind closed doors to coordinate their stories about the plane leak. The White House has announced it will have no 
comment on this book uh, by Scott McClellan, and I was rather disgusted to hear Ari Fleischer being allowed to spin uh, his tale on, on NPR, saying that he was heartbroken that Scott had done this. As if, as if Ari Fleischer being disappointed with Scott McClellan's telling the truth is newsworthy. Some things are just obvious. We've been trying to point them out on this program for many a year, but it's nice to hear somebody on the inside confirm what we've been saying. And which you, dear listener, I'm sure knew. All right, we mentioned a few weeks back we wanted to talk more about uh, Morgan Spurlock's new, new movie, Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden? And uh, unfortunately, the movie is no longer playing in local theaters, so you're all going to have to wait for it to come out on DVD. The movie was somewhat uh, criticized, justifiably, for uh, uh, the fact that it couldn't resist digging into what was described as his Michael Moore-sized bag of tricks and shticks. But as was pointed out in a review by James Rokey in uh, Mother Jones, Spurlock didn't make the film for NPR listeners or Atlantic subscribers, but rather those Americans who've never seen a Muslim speak about his longing for human rights or people who just never thought about the link between their local gas station and jihadism. Describing how the movie evolves, The Economist magazine said, A surprising amount of information is conveyed in the process. Mr. Spurlock learns about the roots of al-Qaeda in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and about the Palestinians' skepticism regarding their Islamist champions, and the poverty of perpetually war-torn Afghanistan. Tell you, one scene I thought uh, worthy of note in the movie was when Spurlock tries to enter an ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem. In SF, writing in SF Gate, uh, Walter Adiego uh, actually interviewed uh, Spurlock and asked him about that. The writer asked, One reviewer took you to task for the scene in which you enter the ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhood and are basically chased out by some hostile men. The writer implied, Well, what do you expect? Spurlock said, Well, we didn't expect that. Even our producer didn't expect that. We were very taken aback. The best thing about that scene is the guy who makes a point to come up to me and say, the majority of people here don't think like the men who are hostile. There were a few people, like four or five, who were really causing the whole hubbub. Don't perceive us to be like these few people, he was saying, and I think there's a similar point going through the whole film. Anyway, the movie talks quite a bit about uh, the marketing going on uh, for the hearts and minds of of the world and how... um, The U.S. does not appear to be prevailing against al-Qaeda in many venues across the globe. An article in Radar magazine by John Cook about uh, marketing Osama worthy of of your attention. It uh, originally appeared in Radar, was later reprinted in The Week magazine, and is no doubt available uh, on the web. It's curious to note that with all the money the U.S. has to spend on public relations, uh, we seem to be spending a lot of it here to influence the domestic market rather than people overseas. The former is supposed to be illegal, and the latter is very advisable in in our current world. And speaking of public relations, we have to say a word or two about uh, Ben Stein's effort to to line up with America's religious fundamentalists to, uh, to compare Darwinism with Nazism. I must say, it's very distressing to see Ben Ben Stein, who is, uh, you know, whatever else he is, a very bright guy, uh, lining up with this boneheaded notion of uh, of intelligent design. And even worse, trying to claim that people are being fired all across the country for the crime of endorsing this position. 
Anyway, uh, probably the best thing said about uh, this this horrendous movie was uh, the comments were the comments by Michael Shermer in his um, opinion piece in Scientific American, which he described as expelled. That's the name of the movie. Expelled, exposed. He describes how Ben Stein came to interview him in conjunction with the movie, uh, the full name of which is Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. Said Shermer, the subtitle exposes its motif. Intelligent design has been expelled from classrooms and culture. Ben Stein sees a sinister conspiracy at work. This supercilious financial columnist and ersatz actor and game show host proceeded to grill me on whether or not I think someone should be fired for expressing dissenting views. My answer? It depends. Who is being fired for what, when, and where? People are usually fired for reasons having to do with budgetary constraints, incompetence, or failure to fulfill the terms of a contract. If you're hired to teach biology according to the curriculum standards of your school district, but instead spend the semester telling students that science has no definitive explanation for DNA, wings, eyes, brains, and that mystery of mysteries, bacterial flagella, then yes, you should be fired post-haste. But, added Shermer, I know of no instance in which this has happened, and the film's examples of such alleged abuses have reasonable explanations explained at www.expelledexposed.com, where Eugenie Scott and her tireless crew at the National Center for Science Education have tracked down the specifics of each case. After asking the questions a dozen different ways, Stein finally changed the subject and queried my opinion on the social impact of Darwinism. Having just finished my book on evolutionary economics, The Mind of the Market, I drew the connection between Adam Smith's invisible hand and Charles Darwin's natural selection, and noted how capitalists have long used social Darwinism to justify unfettered market competition. Starting with early 20th century belief in the survival of the fittest corporations, to Enron CEO Jeffrey Skilling, who said his favorite book in Harvard Business School was Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. This was not the answer Ben Stein wanted, and he rejoined with a vehemence I did not understand until I saw his film. Expelled contends that Darwinism leads to atheism, communism, fascism, and a repetition of the Holocaust. He went on to note, Expelled is pure propaganda that would even make Lenny Riefenstahl blush. Riefenstahl, whose death we chronicled on this program a few years back, was uh, the master film documentarian whose, uh, whose triumph of the will managed to make Adolf Hitler and the Nazis look like geniuses. Anyway, Shermer said, Tellingly, this uh, documentary is being marketed to church groups, religious organizations, and conservative Christians. I saw it at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, where Stein and the producers received a standing ovation. He concluded by noting, when will Americans learn that evolutionary theory has nothing to do with religion and that good science, in quotes, is the product of good data and theory, not, quote, good fit to scripture, unquote. After expelled, will anyone take Ben Stein seriously again? Anyone? Anyone? And we're sad to note that the answer to that surely is yes, they will. In fact, even Scientific American, I think, is getting a little bit nervous about this. They're having to do some uh, some real basic evolutionary biology pieces uh, in the recent issues. Uh, I think last month, the May edition, had an article on how switches within DNA 
govern when and where genes are turned on, which enables genomes to generate the great diversity of animal forms from very similar sets of genes. The article was uh, titled Regulating Evolution and is well worth a look, as is uh, the article in the current issue of Scientific American titled What is a Species? It explains how uh, that isn't as easy to uh, define as you might think. That doesn't mean that the idea of a species is invalid. It just means to fully understand it, uh, you, you know, have to look at a few aspects related to what, you know, what might make up a species. And uh, speaking of PR and the battle for uh, <laughs> public opinion, article in New Scientist magazine from last February we've been sitting on by Jim uh, Giles noted that uh, in the 1950s, tobacco companies funded scientific research aimed at downplaying the risks of smoking. The article referred to how uh, documents that were newly scrutinized by academics revealed that members of the network that was put together of, of economists, philosophers, and sociologists by Big Tobacco uh, generated extensive media coverage and numerous scientific articles with almost no mention that the work had been paid for by cigarette manufacturers. Which brings us up to the article in The Atlantic, in the current edition, by Stephen Ferris, titled Conspiracy Theory, which uh, talks about how uh, it seems clear that uh, big oil is using the same techniques that big tobacco used to hire so-called experts to try and instill doubt in people's minds about whether there is such a thing as global warming. The hope uh, is that this propaganda campaign will backfire when, uh, when legal charges can be brought against various um, CO2 generators on behalf of some um, villagers from the Eskimo village of Kivalina uh, in the west coast of Alaska, which is eroding away due to the fact that, uh, that there's less ice to protect them. They're facing uh, the brunt of waves uh, throughout more of the year, and this is causing erosion, and the whole village is going to wash into the sea. Since it's been proven that tobacco took a big hit uh, when it was revealed that they tried to conceal the risks of smoking by using a series of think tanks and other organizations to falsely sow public doubt, despite an emerging scientific consensus, the same exact argument makes big oil and big coal and other generators of CO2 similarly vulnerable. Noting that Exxon alone has funneled about $16 million to carefully chosen organizations that promote disinformation on global warming. There's just no other way to put it. Of course, the article did note that the first tobacco suits were filed in the 1950s, but it wasn't until 1988 that lawyers were finally able to find chinks in the industry's armor. Of course, having done it once and being aware of what huge, deep pockets uh, uh, big oil uh, represents, um, well, there's going to be some motivation to go after them, and uh, we, we wish those people well. Let's uh, close the segment with some words from our old pal, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today, I want to say that even though Hillary Clinton is being buffeted on all sides to get out of the race, I think she should stay in. I mean, what the hell? She's come this far. Who quits within sight of the finishing line of a marathon? And I'm sure my opinion is going to be the one that convinces her. So, I've come up with a top ten list of reasons why the junior senator from New York should stick it out to the bitter end. And when I say bitter, I mean bitter. No need to thank me. I'm here to help. Number 10. 
Well, who knows? I mean, maybe Puerto Rico will tap into a vast pool of undiscovered oil and get ratified as a state before June 3rd. Number nine, it's either this or you go home and listen to Bill Bitch Bitch Bitch. Number eight, what's that old saying? As go Montana and North Dakota, so goes the world. Number seven, well, this way, people can look at Chelsea and say, well, it's easy to see where she got her stubbornness. Number six, you want that vice presidential nod, you go get it the old-fashioned way. You earn it. Number five, whenever people speak about the hardest-working woman in politics, they're talking about you, little lady. Number four, just for the nutritious road food. Number three, staying in guarantees your knitting circle will never call you a quitter. Number two, be honest. What else you got going on? And the number one reason that Hillary Clinton should stay until the bitter end, spite. Just do it for spite. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. All right, let's take a short break and come back and talk to Matt Kaplan from the Planetary Society, whose Planetary Radio can be heard all over the nation and also locally on both KDVS and KZFR. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. <laughs> 